This morning, we are in the last bit of Luke chapter 5. Today's message is called Sanctity or Sacrifice. Now, perhaps you remember I preached another message about a year ago entitled the same thing, Sanctity or Sacrifice. So technically, this is Sanctity or Sacrifice Revisited. Luke 5. The message today, in Luke 5, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When he calls sinners to repentance, or rather, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Today, we are going to look at the idea of sanctity, to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be made more Christ-like, to be purified, to be in the world and not of the world. Instead of focusing on the sincerity of true faith, which our original message in the book of Micah, if you haven't read that, it's a wonderful passage. Today we're going to be addressing the issue that Jesus is addressing in Luke, the, the, the delusion that we let ourselves believe, the, the delusion that our sacrifices or the shape that they take is the only thing that God requires, that our sacrifices is the measure of our faith. This dire truth, unfortunately, the dire truth is that none of us are immune, no matter where we are in our walk walk with the Lord. So let us revisit our intentions and reevaluate our motives. Are we merciful? Here's an example of uh, mercy powerfully played out in history. Um, <clears throat> a, uh, uh, during the expansion of the Holy Roman Empire, they expanded into Northern Europe, and there was a great battle that was fought against um, uh, a Saxon army. They were defeated, <clears throat> and the, the leader of this army... Um, from the Roman side, the man showed him mercy. Instead of making an example of this Saxon leader, instead of killing him, instead of parading his severed body through the, the you know, look at the power, he showed him mercy. <clears throat> and to a man, a, a pagan worshiper, an idolater, a man that has never known <clears throat> Jesus in any form, the concept of mercy was completely, why would you do this? It was so um, jarring, it was so shocking that this leader got baptized. 
And that moment allowed a great um, flood or exodus of, of missionaries into northern Europe to establish churches and, and share the gospel. I'm oversimplifying that story, <clears throat> but one act of mercy had such a profound impact on the gospel. We're going to look at that in our example today. So let's read from Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. After these things, <clears throat> he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax collector station, and he said to him, follow me. He left everything and rose up and followed him. Then Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a group of many tax collectors and others who sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are not well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. <clears throat> Dear Lord, I pray now for this message. I pray that we may be edified by it, that we may grow from it and apply it in our lives. Amen. <clears throat> So we're going to look at the story, the calling of Matthew. He was uh, also known as Matthew Levi. It's the same person. And then we're going to uh, look at Jesus' quotes, an Old Testament passage. And we're going to look at that passage and reevaluate some of the delusions that we can gather up over time about repentance and about sanctification. <clears throat> So, here called Levi, later to be known as Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, he would go on to write one of the Gospels and use his distinct Jewish upbringing and his analytical eye to um, write a very unique Gospel with a distinctly Jewish connection, and it ties so much of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant together. And depicts Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, which he is. <clears throat> Jesus calls this man to repentance. <clears throat> so as we've mentioned before, perhaps you already know um, <clears throat> that tax collectors were notoriously ostracized from Jewish society. They were um, treated like exiles. They were uh, hated by the common people. They were... Um, they couldn't walk freely in public for fear of death. Perhaps some of them even needed, you know, Roman security to accompany them. <clears throat> um, they were, um, the reason for this was because they were Jewish people that collected taxes for Rome. They were seen as traitors. I'm sure Matthew must have seen Jesus before or heard about him. His deeds would, it said, it spread throughout the entire country at the time, and he had done many miracles and taught many things by this point, and, um, and he must have heard of Jesus. 
I'm sure, perhaps even witnessed one of his miracles. The thought of guilt or remorse, judging from his reaction, must have been there. I can't believe the Messiah has come. I can't believe that this man is going around forgiving people's sins, which happened the, the previous chapter, the previous story. I, I can imagine a longing. I have done so much wrong in my life. I can't possibly stand before this man. He will hate me. He's the Messiah. He's the, the, the person to lead his people out of oppression. He will hate me just as much as his people hates me. I, I can imagine the sense of remorse and the sense of guilt he must have felt. He must have. I can imagine him sitting by his tax collector's booth, just going about his life, doing the only thing that he knows, and he sees Jesus. I can imagine Matthew looking at Jesus like a hawk, not taking his eyes off of this man. That's him. That's him. Being so close, yet so far. And then I can imagine Jesus turning around and looking him in the eye and saying, follow me. And hearing these words these impossible words without hesitation he gets up and in that act he leaves everything all of his wealth all of his his um his, his burning bridges on the jewish side and on the roman side he would have nowhere to go except follow this man if he got up and left there would be nothing for him after this. Let's talk about sacrifice. <clears throat> but he did it without a moment's hesitation. You can imagine him being very emotional to hear these words that we all long to hear, to be called. And he throws a great feast at his house with all of his tax collector friends to celebrate. And they do. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees were, were it. They were the cream of the crop. They were the religious elite. People looked to them to, for spiritual guidance, for legal guidance. For They were the de facto leaders of the Jewish culture at the time. <clears throat> to be religious, to be close to God, was to be a Pharisee. They would pray every day. They would study the law every day. They would attend the synagogue that would put us churchgoers to shame. <clears throat> but we know over and over from the story so far and going on ahead that their hearts were not 
in the right place. They believed themselves to be righteous. They had no um, humility. They had no uh, repentance. <clears throat> they believed that because they knew the law and because they applied it so strictly into their lives that they were holy, that they were sanctified. And the tax collectors and the sinners were unclean, they were unsanctified. And so they drew this very sharp, distinct line. What you have done and who you are prevents you from receiving the grace of God. That's what they're saying. And Jesus <clears throat> uh, speaks to them. So we looked at Jesus' call, a sinner to repentance. The Pharisees calls out Jesus' associations. And then Jesus calls out the Pharisees' hypocrisy. <clears throat> The illustration he uses, let's read it again. He says in verse 31, those who are not, who do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The first, the illustration here is, brings forth a distinct characteristic of mercy, I believe. The illustration of a physician <coughs> When we are sick, do we deny the symptoms in our bodies? When we are gravely ill, we go see a doctor. <clears throat> the doctor doesn't hammer people. Are you sick? Are you sick? Are you, are you sure you're not sick? Are you sure you're not sick? Are you sick? <clears throat> we intrinsically realize the need for help when we are sick it's undeniable we feel the symptoms in our body we know that there is one person we must go see a doctor it illustrates this characteristic of mercy it says but those who are sick another some translation says broken and that's relevant we're going to get to that. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't call, the Holy Spirit doesn't call, he calls everyone, but, but to recognize the need for a Savior, to recognize I am, I am drowning, I am, I am lost in my sin, is like being on the brink of physical death, <laughs> on you crashed your car, you're on the side of the highway, and you're, there's nothing left of you, and then the paramedics come, and they stabilize you, and they um, treat your injuries, and they save your life. I don't think anyone would say, no, no, I'm fine, thanks. The illustration of the need for Christ being something akin to being on the brink of death from a physical illness, and a doctor coming along 
and performing that surgery. It says something about how mercy, the relationship of mercy that we have and when we seek mercy from God. <clears throat> In Matthew, he says something else, um, and this is the quote that we're going to look at. Matthew in verse 13, talking about the same story, says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that quote is from Hosea chapter 6. <laughs> now, before we turn there to address uh, the Pharisees' claim, why was he... Um, consorting with sinners, with tax collectors. You know, when we think about bad guys in the movie, you know, they're, they're um, maniacal and, they're, and they revel in their evil and their misdeeds and things. And I always pictured this crowd like that. I don't know why. But in Mark chapter 15, it says, again, about the same story. Jesus was at supper in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And we know from this that everyone that was there, everyone that was discarded and ostracized, they were repentant. They understood their need for a savior, and they followed him wasn't just the 12 many there was many people that followed Jesus's movements that met him in the cities where he went to hear his preaching to to um, so in a very literal sense followed him but we know they were repentant <laughs> so knowing that knowing how Matthew was called and how um, how his heart his repentant heart played out and what he was willing to sacrifice and the contrast of the religious elite and Jesus saying, go and study what this means. They were delusional. They had this idea of spirituality that even despite their study of the word and their prayer <clears throat> they had missed and so to guard ourselves against delusions like that of um, hypocritical faith let's consider what Hosea 6 says and tackle some delusions In verse 1, let us come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has struck and he will bind us up. The first delusion is regarding repentance. Return to the Lord. A place of repentance is a lowly place. It's rock bottom in some cases. It's the place where we find ourselves at when nothing 
else uh, matters except the Lord, turning to him. Repentance is not perfection. It is not what we give. Notice of this wording of a physician. <clears throat> Return to the Lord. That's what repentance means, by the way. To turn away from ourselves and the things that we uh, do and rebel against God and turn back to him. Return to the Lord. And then it says, um, <clears throat> for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has struck, but he will bind us up, put a bandage on, the physician. We say, Lord, I am battered, I am bruised, but I am grateful. When we sin as Christians, and we do, what does repentance become then? 10 years after salvation, 20 years after salvation. We can go two ways. Either we end up metaphorically whipping ourselves on the back. Some of the stricter Roman Catholic um, subsections used to do when they repentance penance was they would whip themselves on the back until they bled because they they had sinned no <laughs> that's not what we do it doesn't make the sin better we find ourselves doing that we find ourselves feeling in this constant state of inward guilt and inward shame <clears throat> And it's actually quite selfish. We think, <coughs> sorry. We think my sin and, the, and this and this and don't, we don't stop sinning or, and we don't make it uh, right with God. We, we're just in the cycle of self-loathing. And we think that if we feel guilty enough, eventually we'll feel better that that's what God wants, that, he, that repentance is just this feeling of, um, of constant inward guilt. No. On the other hand, it becomes, sin becomes a little oopsie, oopsie-daisy. I did it again, oops. Sin becomes little mistakes. This is, here's an actual view that is held by prominent, prominent churches on the doctrine of sanctification. Once you are saved, you never, ever, ever sin again. That's what they say. And then they arbitrarily say that these things are sins and these things are just mistakes. I kid you not. I'm not making this up. These are just mistakes. So if you do any of these it's okay, it's just a little oopsie. It doesn't affect your sanctification. But if you do these things, then you weren't actually, you lose your salvation. I think that's what they say. 
That's why we teach on eternal security. Because churches teach that. That's not what sanctification is. We might fall into that delusion to think, I'm better than I was then. I'm better than this person. I'm better than who I was a year ago. So I can excuse my sin. It's just a little oopsie. It's not as bad as it used to be, so it's fine. And we never make peace with God. No, repentance is when our crippling battle with addiction, for example, turns around and becomes a powerful testimony of the Spirit of God working in our lives. It's when our previous convictions and lifestyles melt away by the truth, by the conviction of the truth. In my case, it was atheism. I was a hardened atheist before the Lord showed mercy on me and saved me. With the same humility and gravity of the day that we repented of our unbelief and asked the Lord to save us from our sins. So every day for the rest of our lives, we must acknowledge the forgiveness that we have in Christ while, not, while also acknowledging the gravity of our misdeeds. And say, Lord, thank you. I am grateful for your forgiveness because I know the depravity of my sin and that you are greater than that. And we pray that. Because we're not going to stop sinning until the day of glorification. But repentance, the delusion of repentance can find us so easily. <clears throat> I, can, I think I can end my sermon there. That was... But no, there's still a bit more in Hosea. It says in verse 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. We can fall into a delusion regarding our own salvation even. What is salvation? We can <clears throat> be influenced by false gospel, we can believe that we are saved from our circumstances, our financial troubles. We can believe that we are saved from um, the troubles of this world, that because we are, are saved, we are somehow exempt from experiencing hardship and suffering and illness and death. In the Jewish mind, they very much believed that what happened, the way that you die or what befalls you, was linked to somehow, um, to some sin that you had committed or some way you were living uh, or some unrepentant heart. And look at us, we're wealthy, we're well off, we're loved. 
that must mean that we are faithful and God likes us. And look at that person. He's got leprosy and he's suffering. That must mean that God hates him. Now, we know in this church that that's not the case. But regarding salvation, how we extend mercy to others, we can sometimes <clears throat> fall in a trap of believing false gospel, of leaning on the belief that if I go to church and if I give, and if I be a certain kind of person, God will have mercy on me and he will make things better for me. I'm not saying that we might believe it in theory. You know, we know that that's not true, but I'm talking about in situations, in practical um, life where we can fall into the trap of this delusion. <clears throat> no, we know salvation is from God. It says on the third day, he will, revive, he will raise us up like he was raised up that we may live before him. The point of salvation is not Happiness is not um, blessing, is not a comfy life. The point of salvation is so that we can live eternally with our God. We can return to our original purpose. We can be restored to our creator. Salvation, eternal life is not just a bonus it is absolutely necessary. How can we have fellowship with an eternal being, an everlasting God, if we are so fleeting? Salvation's purpose, so we can be restored to our Creator. It is for His glory. We need Him. It's not the other way around. Regarding obedience, verse 3 says, Let us know, let us press on to the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain. Like the spring rain, he will water the earth. Regarding obedience, Obedience, what does the day in the life of a Christian look like? What motivates our prayer life? What motivates our giving, our service to God's people? Is it guilt? Is it frenzy? You get swept up in this feeling and then you, whoa, yeah, woohoo! And you go and then when that feeling disappears, so does our obedience. What, what delusions do we fall in? We come to church because it's expected of us, because 
what might people think if I'm not there? No. <clears throat> says in verse 3, let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. And it says his appearance is as sure as the dawn. The delusion of obedience. We feel sometimes that we're getting points docked off when we don't read our Bible and so we read two chapters the next day to fill up the obedience tank. We fall for that delusion, don't we? Obedience is motivated by the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> when the Bible speaks about the coming, it says that we are to be hopeful for it, but sober. That we are to be ever mindful that the Lord is coming, it says, as sure as the dawn. In the parable of the master and the talents illustrates our motivation for obedience. If we all know the parable, the master gives one servant a hundred talents, the other servant ten talents, and the other servant one talent. Now, that is a measure of something. It's, I think it's like 20 kilograms or something of a certain currency. Okay, so imagine 20 kilograms of, of gold or silver, okay? It's a huge investment. The one he gave 100 to, and they worked. They worked to increase that wealth because the master is going to come back one day, and he's going to judge my actions. I need to do something with this because he's coming back. Not because, oh, the neighbor might think less of me if I don't, or, oh, um, whatever reason, whatever reason we tell ourselves motivates Christian habits. The motivation is that he's going to come back, he's going to see what we have done with what he has given us. And we have each received. We have received the gospel. We have received eternal life. And we have received breath and days in our life to do something for God. And the motivation for our obedience is that the Lord is returning. I don't think that that was the motivation in the Pharisees' case. Where they go about religiously religious. <laughs> I don't think that they were motivated by the coming of the Lord because he had come and they did not acknowledge it. If that is our motivation, then our obedience will be right. Regarding sanctification, He says, what shall I do to you, O Ephraim? What shall I do to you, O Judah? Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. Regarding our sanctification, 
10, 20 years down the line, we have different emotions than what we did that moment we got saved. Our, our loyalty, our dedication can be so fleeting if done for the wrong reasons. If everything was taken away from those Pharisees, I doubt that they would have been as religiously observant. But for Matthew, he had willingly given up everything. <clears throat> it was probably not a happy moment. Ultimately, he was still hated by his family, most likely by his Jewish brethren. Now he was hated by the Romans as well to be persecuted one day. And all he had was Christ. And we have delusions of our own sanctification. We place faith in religious rituals. becomes a fallback when Christ isn't as clear as the day we placed our faith. He isn't as in focus and, and so we turn to, I have taken communion, I've been baptized, I go to church. Yes, we should go to church, we should do all these things, <clears throat> but we think it makes us more holy. Sanctification is something that happens when the Spirit of the Lord indwells us <clears throat> and we are transformed. It says we are a new creation. But we must also put in the legwork we must turn from our sins. We must turn from our lifestyles. We must turn from our negative influences and turn to God. And so it is this cooperative um, journey, this process that can only be achieved in the power of the Lord, but that requires some blood, sweat, and tears when we become disillusioned to how sanctification works. We come to church <coughs> to fill up that bar. I know we know this in theory. I know we've preached for, uh, this from this pulpit many times, but do we remember it in the moment-to-moment -moment, living out of our faith? Do we have a right view of repentance? Do we have a right view of our salvation? Do we have a right motive for our, our obedience? Do we have a right view of our sanctification, of our Christ-likeness? I hope that this message today will help us reevaluate some of our misconceptions that we might have garnered over the years but also, <clears throat> I hope that it changes our view to, of those that we 
share the gospel to, that we take out, we, we share it with the people that need it the most, in love. This whole chapter, there's a common theme of repentance. So I'm repeating some of the things I even said last time, because there's a common idea here. Let us not be prejudiced with the message of the gospel to take it to everyone in love. There is no one that deserves it, and that's the point. Neither do we. That's what makes it so beautiful. To challenge our preconceived ideas of our neighbors, our colleagues, our family and friends, and to not confuse self-righteousness with righteous anger. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can learn from the story of Matthew and how you called him to follow you. May we take example from this and may we take example from Hosea chapter 6. Lord, please forgive us of our sins as we know you in your grace have done. We thank you for that. Let us not lose sight of that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>